When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary. Because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound Off. This is about infrastructure that can lead to economic growth for a generation. We need to make sure that we establish a comprehensive cybersecurity strategy. Republicans have a great chance of taking the House in 2022. Bloomberg Sound Off. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. We continue to open this economy slowly, but it's coming back. I want to know what the theme is going to be for Republicans. I can't imagine a more important person in Washington right now than Senator Joe Manchin. Bloomberg Sound On with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Radio. Live from Washington, where the Fed chair speaks, helping to soothe some fears about inflation today as the economy recovers from COVID. On the same day, the White House admits it will not meet its vaccination goal by the 4th of July. Coming up, we'll talk about the recovery and the political implications of rising interest rates with Mick Mulvaney, former director of the Office of Management and Budget, former White House chief of staff. And we'll be joined as well by Bloomberg political contributor Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno, along today with Joe Crowley, former congressman from New York, former chair of the House Democratic Caucus. A good day as New York City heads to the polls. We also have breaking news on the voting rights bill in the House from just a short time ago. We'll get to that shortly. But first... Let's update the markets today. As stocks built on yesterday's rebound to finish with some modest gains as traders kept an ear on the testimony from Powell. The S&P 500 up 21 points today, about a half percent, with retail and high tech leading the way higher. The Nasdaq was up 112 points, almost 1 percent. The Dow Industrial Average up 68. Powell told a congressional subcommittee today he still expects inflation to wane, says the Fed will wait for actual inflation before interest rates must rise. The yield on the 10-year note actually fell slightly, 1.47%. Bitcoin off the mat today after falling below $30,000 overnight. On worries about China taking a harder line on cryptocurrencies, among other issues, Bitcoin, though, trading back above $32,000, testing 33000 this afternoon. Shares of MicroStrategy down 5%. And Microsoft is now a $2 trillion company, joining Apple in a rather exclusive club with that market value. Thanks to Microsoft's growing dominance in cloud computing, Microsoft shares up 1%. Apple did the same. I'm Joe Matthew, and that's Bloomberg Business Flash. Now we turn to our top guest this morning as we begin with congressional testimony with Fed Chair Jay Powell, who spoke to the House Select Committee on the Coronavirus Crisis and he went straight for the I-word in his opening remarks. Inflation has increased notably in recent months. This reflects, in part, the very low readings from early in the pandemic falling out of the calculation, 
the pass-through of price increases in oil prices to consumer energy prices, the rebound in spending as the economy continues to reopen, and the exacerbating factor of supply bottlenecks, <clears throat> which have limited how quickly production in some sectors can respond in the near term. Inflation has increased notably. Powell, though, says it will still be temporary. I woke up to the headline on my Bloomberg app today called Powell, Mr. Transitory. And of course, not everybody agrees with that, including Mick Mulvaney, founder of Exegis Capital and former director of the Office of Management and Budget, former White House chief of staff. Mick, it's great to have you with us today. Welcome. You said inflation is here to stay. Do you still believe that? Uh, I do. I hope I'm wrong. By the way, thanks for having me. Um, I hope I'm wrong, and I hope Jay is right. Um, But if you simply look at the fundamentals of what causes inflation, they are here, and they seem to be here to stay, which is that we have more and more money being dumped into the system. Of course, inflation defined very simply, too much money chasing too few goods and services. You pump a bunch of free money, new money into a system without having a corresponding increase in the in the goods and services that money can buy, you're going to get inflation. And in fact, we're doing the opposite under the Biden administration. We're making it harder to bring goods and services to market through new regulations, new tax schemes, et cetera. So the fundamentals are there for inflation, I think, for a while. I hope I'm wrong, and I hope Powell's right. Well, judging by what we're seeing already uh, with consumer prices, and a lot of materials prices, some people think interest rates should rise sooner than later. Chair Powell spoke directly to the matter of interest rates in his testimony today. Here's what he said. We will not raise interest rates preemptively because we think employment is too high, because we fear the possible onset of inflation. Instead, we will wait for actual evidence of actual inflation or other imbalances. So, Mick, are we splitting hairs here? Is it, is it time to start hiking sooner? Yes and no, but not for the reasons I actually agree with what Powell said there is that, listen, we've been pushing a long time for them not to raise rates too quickly because of the Phillips curve, the connection between employment rates um, and inflation. Um, I'm okay with them not looking to employment rates. I am wishing they would look at prices, actual inflation. They were looking previously as uh, the employment rate as a precursor to price pressure. Um, I thought that was a terrible idea. We, we talked to Janet Yellen about that at, at length when I was in the House Financial Services Committee. Um, but I, I, I don't understand why they simply won't look at the prices right now. So I, th- I think you're right. There are some indications that some of it might be transitory. Yes, you're coming off a low base. All of those things are true, but I keep coming back to that same premise, which is that the basic building blocks for inflation are there, and importantly, they are not going away anytime soon. It's, of course, not just the Fed. When you look across the spectrum, the the financial regulatory agencies, many of them met with the president in the Oval Office yesterday to talk about the reopening and specifically the recovery from COVID. At what point do higher prices threaten that recovery? Oh, now. Um, And here's why. Here's what I think. And I don't understand why why my Democrat friends don't get this. By the way, um, please say hello to Joe Crowley, a great member of Congress. Uh, we, we often didn't uh, agree on policy, but as a good member of Congress, I'm glad to see he's on your show. You should ask him the same question, which is, who does inflation hurt the most? Inflation hurts the middle class, the lower class, and the elderly, the folks that we are counting on to help drive this uh, economic recovery as we come out of COVID through consumer spending. Yeah. And if you undermine their buying power, their, their purchase power, through uh, dramatic inflation, it puts the recovery at risk now. You know, the other side of that is, of course, is that you're, you're talking about certain individuals 
uh, who could suffer more from uh, inflation. There are still millions of people out of work, millions of people who don't have a job to go back to in many cases. Is the stimulus that's coming from the Fed, from Congress and the actions of the White House going to help them, some of the, the most vulnerable, the lowest income in America? Um, let me challenge a little bit of your premise. You said there's a bunch of people out of work. That is a true statement. But then you said there's a bunch of people out of work because there's no job available for them. That's, that's not accurate. It's certainly going to be uh, accurate on, a, on, uh, on certain you know, one-off type of basis. But when you look um, at the overall environment right now, we have more job openings than we have unemployed. We have that difficulty in my state of South Carolina, which is a circumstance that led my governor and many others to dial back on the extraordinary, the extra uh, unemployment benefits that many of us believe were keeping people from going back to work. So, yes, there are folks out of work, but it's, it's not, it doesn't seem to be because of the demand for labor. Every single person listening to this, uh, this show right now knows of a business that hasn't been able to open, a restaurant that hasn't been able to open, um, services levels that are decreased because they cannot find people. Um, we have created a circumstance where it is, it is too profitable not to work, and until we fix that structural change or that structural deficiency, you're going to have a mismatch between um, jobs and employment. Considering the reopening here for COVID, uh, there's a great story on the Bloomberg Terminal today. Uh, the headline, the world's financial centers struggle back to the office. It's, it's not just here in the U.S., Though my personal example here is Washington, D.C., which in many afternoons looks like a ghost town. When you add other financial capitals uh, in Europe and across this country, for that matter, what's it going to take to get people to come back? If you're pointing to jobs that are open and say there are people qualified for those jobs, you can have an argument about unemployment rates and so forth. But we're talking about millions of people who need to get back into the workforce. Does that happen in the fall when students start to go back to work, when child care starts to resolve itself? What's your expectation in the next couple of months? Yeah, that's a good question. I see it really as two issues. The folks not coming back into the office doesn't necessarily mean they're not working. I haven't been to an office in a year and a half, uh, and I'm probably working more now than I have in a long time. So no, I think there's, there's a, a cultural issue to deal with about whether or not people want to go back to work or whether or not they prefer working remotely. Um, I've got anecdotal evidence from folks who work for various uh, financial institutions who say that productivity is actually higher since they've been home, and they know how to measure this apparently, um, given the fact that they're not spending an hour and a half a, a day um, uh, commuting, and they're not spending an hour and a half at lunch. So there's, there's cultural changes, seismic changes in our economy. I don't think that has much to do with whether or not people want to go back to work or can go back to work. Um, the question is going to be matching the jobs with the people. Right now, jobs are there. Um, people are, are, are available, but they're not working. We need to figure out why that is. We're talking with Mick Mulvaney here on Bloomberg Sound On. As we turn to what's happening uh, on Capitol Hill, I want to ask you about this uh, debate about the filibuster. We're going to talk about this coming up with the aforementioned Joe Crowley and Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno. Uh, I saw the op-ed this morning from Senator Kirsten Cinema, Democrat, of course, from Arizona, abolishing filibuster would weaken democracy's guardrails. She says, is that the question that we're coming to here when it comes to infrastructure, or even with regard to the voting rights bill, what we saw happen today, is the filibuster going to be at risk? I, I think anytime you've got one party in charge of both chambers of Congress, you're going to have pressure on the on the filibuster. Certainly, 
I, I pressured Mitch McConnell to try and, and limit the filibuster when I was chief of staff of the president of the United States. I thought that um, the, the modern filibuster, the notice filibuster, where senators don't even have to talk a filibuster, um, is an abomination. It's, it, it's, not, it's not historically sound. Um, and that they should go back to uh, the, the version of the filibuster where you actually have to speak and the rest of the Senate has to shut down during a real filibuster. That's the way it ran for, for many, many decades. That's the, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington model that we're, many of us are familiar with from Hollywood. But um, I think anytime you've got one party uh, in control of, of both and certainly one party in control of both chambers plus the White House, there's tremendous pressure to get your agenda done. And you're going to see pressure on the filibuster. I don't think it's going to go away. Um, for a different reason, not because of guardrails of democracy, but face it, every senator recognizes they could well be in the minority after the next midterm election, whenever that midterm <laughs> election might be, and it's going to undermine their authority and their power if the filibuster isn't there. Well, you're getting uh, you're getting onto something there. It was obviously, what's good for one party will be good for the other. Uh, with regard to inf- uh, the infrastructure bill, voting rights is one thing. If infrastructure doesn't get done this summer? Will it happen in the fall? What kind of a timeline do you see? What chances are you putting on this bill? Yeah, I, I've changed my chances. I've increased my chances. I'm up, I'm up about 50-50 at this point because I, I saw some language that I needed to see in order to move it out of the less likely into the more likely column. And that language is over the weekend when several of the Republicans who are working in this group of 10 or 11, I lose track, said that they weren't going to focus too heavily on raising taxes. They weren't going to worry about the pay-fors. They started throwing around things like a, you know, uh, an infrastructure bank and public-private partnerships and so forth, which that's not real money. Um, so what that means is that they've, they've, they've telegraphed that really they don't care about paying for it. That's where I expected this to be. That's where I expected to go. And once that's off the table, it makes it much easier to get a deal done. It's easy to spend a trillion dollars. It's hard to raise money to do it. We'll be back to the conversation about how to pay for it. Mick Mulvaney, it's great to have you with us here on Bloomberg Sound On, and thanks for the time. As we turn to our political panel, watching the sausage being made on Capitol Hill, even though no one seems to expect it to ever be finished. Talking about the voting rights bill, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer says he has a deal on that bill, at least with Joe Manchin. Senator Manchin has informed me that he will vote yes on the motion to proceed to debate the legislation. I have committed to him that if our Republican colleagues don't obstruct and allow us to move forward on the debate, we'll take up his proposed substitute amendment as the first amendment we will consider. But mostly no chance in that happening as the legislation approaches a vote on cloture, including Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. Finally today, uh, we will... Uh, put an end to it uh, here in the Senate. We're joined this morning, or make that this afternoon, by Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno. As well, Joe Crowley, former congressman from New York, former chair of the House Democratic Caucus. It's great to have both of you with us. Forgive the former morning driver. Joe, Mick Mulvaney was just talking about you, and he was curious your thoughts on a couple of issues, but I'd like to start with you on this one. Thanks for being here, by the way. The voting rights bill. My pleasure. Am I missing yeah. something? Nobody actually expects this to be passed. No, I don't think so. But I do think that uh, what Senator Schumer's doing is he's pushing the envelope here. He's actually uh, putting this before the Senate and, in, in essence, demonstrating how broken the Senate is right now by its inability to even even debate the issue, per se. You know, so uh, I think that's part of what's going on here. 
it's not just show. I think it's, you know, it's not just showmanship. This really is about, I think, demonstrating just, you know, the quandary we're in as a country right now of the inability of the Senate to even take up uh, such an important bill. Jeannie, a lot of talk today about messaging. Is that what this is? Well, it is because we're not talking about a vote on the legislation. We're talking about a vote to actually talk about the legislation. And that first vote is not even going to get it, as you and and Joe just mentioned, the two Joes. Um, So this is a lot about messaging. It's about the Democrats trying to push the message to make the case as they run into 2022 that Republicans are stonewalling them. And I would just push back a little bit because I think when you have Stacey Abrams and Barack Obama coming out and saying, Democrats, get on board with Joe Manchin's alternative bill. It's not the best bill. It's not everything you wanted, but it is a heck of a lot better than nothing. And they aren't doing that. I think that's a big problem. And I think that's something I hope that the Democrats get behind after they make this sort of case about the Republican stonewalling. Joe Crowley, this is about the hopes and aspirations of the Democratic Party, certainly the progressive Uh, side of the Democratic Party. What is Joe Biden left with here then? What does the White House do next if this is going nowhere? Well, I think it's even beyond that, Joe. I I think it's about the state of our democracy and and whether or not we actually encourage people to be engaged in the political process and to vote or not. And and that's really what the the crux of the problem is here is we've seen state legislatures all around the country, some 30-some-odd state legislatures that are curtailing or limiting the access to the ballot. And that's not healthy for our government for, and, for, and for our country. Uh, but look, you know, it, it's not just about this issue. It's about a number of issues, including the infrastructure bill, as to whether or not there'll be bipartisan support there. And I think what it really is demonstrating is, again, not just on this issue, but on writ large, the inability of the Senate. You know, this is the, these are the mothers and fathers of the country. You know, there are the states people of the country. They're supposed to be able to get things done even when the House is crippled. And even that's not happening now. It hasn't happened for some time, really, on the big issues. The real question is, Joe, can, can the Congress do big things anymore? And that's really uh, lies at the heart of the matter here. Without reconciliation, that is. It brings us to the whole conversation about the filibuster. I'm sure you both saw the op-ed in the Washington Post uh, from Senator Cinema uh, saying that to eliminate the filibuster would weaken democracy's guardrails. Jeannie, at least she took some attention away from Joe Manchin for a moment here. Uh, where is Kirsten Cinema coming from, and what do the, the, the progressive Democrats who stumped for her in the campaign think of this? Well, they can't be happy with this, of course. And, and you know, I have to say, um, I disagree with Senator Cinema on this. The filibuster was not something established by the framers. They rejected it. It is a Senate rule. It's something that they have adopted, and it has allowed minorities in the Senate to have an outsized voice in our system. So when Joe Crowley is talking about the Senate not in Congress as a whole not being able to get things done, it's precisely these kind of reforms that have to happen to make our Congress more reflective of the majority of citizens as a whole. When you have vast majorities of people wanting sensible gun control, for instance, after 26 people, children, are shot and killed in Connecticut and they can't push it through, that's deplorable. And you have to get rid of this filibuster to make this happen. And the arguments she makes in that editorial, I like Kristen Sinema, but the arguments she makes that Republicans would turn around and push back favored Democratic programs, 
those are not actually factually true because those can be protected on reconciliation. So I think her argument is flawed. I get that she wants to maintain this traditional structure in the Senate, but I don't think there's a good reason now in the modern era to do this anymore. Joe, this is what Mick Mulvaney wanted me to ask you about. Cinema writes, I will not support an action that damages our democracy. If they, of course, got rid of the filibuster, this could be Democrats' problem at some point. I'm not so sure that to do that would damage the democracy, uh, as Jeannie alluded to. I do think that what it does demonstrate, though, is that Joe Manchin is not the only person here uh, maybe blocking uh, this possible legislation. And I actually think it goes beyond Kirsten Cinema as well. Meet Gary. Gary's about to become an Einstein in an instant. Whoa, Einstein hair. I like it. That's right, Gary, because you're using Salesforce powered by Einstein AI to connect data, predict business trends, generate personalized content, and wow customers. I do feel a lot smarter. Because you're not just Gary anymore. You're Gary, empowered by Einstein AI. Did you hear that, team? I'm an Einstein. Oh, can I get a selfie? The number one AI CRM. Now everyone's an Einstein with Salesforce. As we turn to the reopening and the effort to vaccinate, there were a lot of skeptics when the White House outlined its latest goal for vaccinations. Remember this, get one shot into 70% of adults by the 4th of July. It seems we will not quite reach that goal. Well, we don't see it exactly like something went wrong. Uh, How we see it is we set a bold, ambitious goal, something the president has done from the very beginning. And uh, we are expected to meet that goal uh, just a couple weeks after July 4th. And in fact, at this point, as of today, we're going to be already at that point for people who are 30 years of age and older. And we're joined by Bloomberg Politics contributor Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno. And Joe Crowley's with us today, the former congressman from New York, former chair of the House Democratic Caucus. Uh, Joe, what's the point of putting out a goal like that if you're not quite sure you're going to reach it? Well, as I think the White House said, you know, it was an ambitious goal, but, uh, you know, it wasn't a complete failure either because we 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 have vaccinated, you know, hundreds of millions of people in the United States today. Uh, over 70 percent of people 30 or older are now vaccinated and uh, we'll reach our goal. We will get there. Uh, so I think we have to look at it that way. You know, the other thing is, too, you know, no one's shirking from this. No one is, is, is saying that uh, they didn't. They never, they never promised that. So I, that's a nuance here in terms of this presidency. Uh, they're being very honest and straightforward and truthful about it as well. So I admire that. Well, look, you're right about all of that. Jeannie, Joe is right about all of that. Why then? Set a goal, you know, some random number, grab a percent or a group of people when when you have a great story to tell, especially if they're going to hit this goal in the next couple of weeks. They do have a great story to tell. And, and you know, I, I forgive them missing this goal, as Joe said, and I agree with you. He's absolutely right. By July 4th, they're going to have 70 percent for 27 years and older. Right. It's the younger people, 18 to 26, they say are going to take a few extra weeks. And I don't think anybody can criticize the Biden administration and the team for where they've brought us in just, you know, four to five months or however long it's been since he was inaugurated in January. So he's exceeded all of the COVID goals he's set until now. This one's going to take a couple extra weeks. Maybe politically it wasn't the best thing, but I think being ambitious in, at this time and in this context, I think it's okay that they did this and they're going to meet it a few weeks later. You are uh, correct about that. That was Press Secretary Jen Psaki, we just heard, by the way, and, and she did make that point. 
that it is young people who are making this a lot more difficult. It's been a, a great deal more difficult uh, to get uh, to get young people between the ages of 18 and 26 vaccinated than adults who are older than that. Hence, uh, we are redoubling our efforts uh, to ensure we are targeting, we are focusing on, we are making the vaccine more accessible for the, those age groups. So, Joe Crowley, how do you get young people to care? I mean, I have enough trouble getting my teenager out of bed in the morning. And, and, and by the way, that teenager is vaccinated, but I had to drag him there. Uh, that's yeah. just the way of the world when you're dealing with young people. Are they going to put Dr. Fauci on TikTok? Is that going to do it? You know, I, I do think that some of the responsibility comes here to the family themselves, you know. And uh, I, know, I know people with the sports figures and the heroic figures to uh, try to influence entertainers. But I think the families need to step up here, mothers and fathers who care about their children, uh, to ensure that when they're eligible that they do get vaccinated. And I, th- I think we will get there, and, and I feel confident in, in that. Um, you know, but I will say that, you know, um, that the naysayers out there are also pretty loud. And I have relatives myself who I kind of I, I, I cringe uh, when they tell me that they're not getting it because they're not going to be guinea pigs. You know, when you hear that, uh, you know, uh, it just makes me cringe. And these are fairly educated people who are saying this to me. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's not just young people. Uh, there are other people out there as well that need to, uh, you need to have a little maybe peer pressure or family pressure brought to bear on them as well. Well, I hate to always be connecting the dots on these things, but it, it strikes me that this story, the effort to vaccinate, the end of COVID is critical to everything else that we're talking about, including this debate over infrastructure. If we're going to reopen the economy, if we're going to invest in America, and this could be a lot of money to invest as we're debating, Jeannie, you have to have uh, this virus come to an end or we're going to be having a different conversation come the fall. That's that's absolutely right. And, and, you know, as we talk about and they talked about today, the Delta variant spread coming across the country and the yep. impact and not just on the entire country, young people in particular worldwide. It is all connected. You can't invest in infrastructure and reopen the economy if people start getting sick again. And I have the same issue you described, Joe, with my with my sons and um, they are vaccinated. But one of them I had to push. But I, I'm, I am hopeful coming from a college environment that perhaps when they get back into school in the fall, if institutions are requiring vaccination, it may help impact the number of young people. But we can't forget the message that went out to young people for a long time, which is even if you get it, it won't be as bad for you. And I think that message needs to be corrected a bit. Yeah, well, you know, the, the fact is, though, there is some truth to that, isn't there, Joe Crowley? I mean, people are getting vaccinated because they know it will prevent the most severe sy- symptoms or death. There is obviously going to be a chance that somebody catches COVID. But look, people get a flu shot every year with much lower odds. Yeah, I I think that's right. I think, you know, the Delta variant itself right now uh, is one in five that are being treated now uh, are Delta variants. And we know as well that it it means if you do get it, you're twice as likely to go to the hospital. Um, And but if you are vaccinated, the chances are extremely low, if, if not infinitesimal, that you will go to the hospital. And I think that's the, you know, the real advantage here of being uh, vaccinated. Uh, it's not just about yourself. It's about all of us. And you talk about the economy getting back together. You know, um, if we go, go through another year of that uh, because of the shutdown again, Lord knows where our economy will go or, or the world's economy for that matter. Our political panel with Joe Crowley and Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno, uh, we've also got uh, 
We've also got an election today up in New York, Joe, and I hope that you'll be able to stay on with us coming up. We're going to talk about this uh, primary election today happening in the city. And we'll be joined as well by Jody Schneider, Bloomberg Political News Director. Have you have you gotten out to vote? Uh, well, I'm no longer a resident of the city, so oh, um, but uh, I do have a preference in this election. And we've got a news alert on the terminal now. Morgan Stanley says it will bar employees and clients that have not received a COVID vaccine from entering its New York offices. The Financial Times citing an internal memo that it has seen on this, and it certainly complements the conversation that we were just having about COVID, the vaccines, the reopening. All employees and clients, as I mentioned, will be required to attest to being fully vaccinated to access Morgan Stanley buildings in New York City and in Westchester. From July 12th, the memo signed by the chief of the Human Resources Office. Now, they're voting today in New York. It's primary election day, the most diverse field of candidates for mayor ever. And we have big plans tonight on Bloomberg Radio, a special coverage starting at 7 p.m. You're going to be hearing from Jody Schneider, Bloomberg Political News Director, who is with us now, along with Joe Crowley. Of course, no stranger to New York City, even if he didn't vote today, former New York congressman. Jody, you got big plans for tonight. This is uh, quite a big field, and we don't even know who's going to win. That's right. Uh, happy Election Day, Joe. Yeah. Uh, both Joes. <laughs> How long will it be before we know? Thank you. It, it could be weeks. It really could be weeks. Um, because of what we call ranked choice voting, this is really a big test for ranked choice voting. Um, the most you know, populous city in the country. Uh, it's primary. It's not the general, of course, but uh, it's almost like a general in New York because there's so many Democrats in the city, uh, about 3.2 million registered Democrats. And um, they're going to the polls to elect mayor and other things, uh, people to the city council, people to um, uh, for the Manhattan DA's race uh, and the comptroller. But the mayor's race, of course, is where all the eyes are focused. And because of ranked choice voting with 13 candidates, uh, it, and no one is uh, expected to get more than 50% of the vote. If someone does, just like in a regular uh, election, uh, you know, the plurality election, they would win. But yeah. because that isn't expected, then becomes the process of figuring out uh, that there's, because you vote for one, two, three, four, five, fifth place, then they need to go figure out who will be, uh, you know, tout, you have to tally up all those numbers, and it's expected to take possibly weeks. Wait, I'll tell you, the ranked choice voting, it's something that's being tried in a lot of different parts of the country. How's it going to play in New York, Joe Crowley, and is, is this why we have such a big field? Well, you know, it's very interesting because I think the way in which it used to be uh, done was that uh, every, everyone, you know, participated in the primary, and if you didn't get 40%, or more, uh, then we go to a runoff where the top two candidates uh, would then face off against each other to get um, beyond the plurality, plurality and get a majority. Uh, you know, I think the expectation was that they might know a little sooner, uh, given ranked choice voting, but that may not be the case. Um, but, um, you know, it, it's something new. It's been used in other jurisdictions like San Francisco, for instance, I know, uh, with mixed reviews. And I think it remains to be seen just how this all comes out and uh, and whether you know people think it was fair or not. So we'll wait and see. 
How's ranked choice voting going over with actual voters, Jody? This stuff can be pretty confusing. Yeah, I think, you know, supporters of this say it really uh, gives people more opportunity to influence who gets elected and uh, rewards those candidates who have broad appeal, that it's also supposed to kind of stop negative voting and negative campaigning, if you will, but uh, we haven't necessarily seen that in this race. It's it's gotten kind of, kind of nasty at times. Uh, but it is confusing and it's complicated. And people who haven't really studied this or learned about it go to the polls and all of a sudden, instead of just voting the way they always have, uh, and they have recently in the presidential election, for instance, now they're faced with this complicated ballot. And it, you know, when you have 13 candidates for mayor, uh, it, it can be confusing. Um, there's also the issue of does it hurt the ability of black and Latino candidates to be seen as viable? And that's come up as an issue in this race as well. Jeannie Sheehan Zeno is still with us as well, Bloomberg Politics contributor. Does this help the system here, Jeannie, or are we going to confuse people away from voting? Well, it's funny. I, I'm thrilled to be in the studio with Jody here. We were just talking off the air about an interview David Weston did earlier today where the person he was talking to said he had to make, I think, 41 to 43 choices on his oh. ballot. So, you know, when you talk about the arguments against this ranked choice voting, the complexity, the amount we're asking of voters, those are among the complaints. But of course, there are positives as well. It's also known as an instant runoff voting system to the extent that, as Joe Crowley was just saying, in the past, you'd then have, if nobody won, you'd have to then have a runoff and ask voters to go back to the polls. This way, you've saved them a trip to the polls again. And of course, you know, turnout is not very good in New York City traditionally. I think in 2013, we had about 700,000 people voted in the Democratic primary and only like 60,000 or the 12% in the Republican. Those are deplorable numbers in a city of eight or nine million. So if we can use this to get the numbers in terms of turnout higher, that would be great. But of course, early voting numbers, and Jody can correct me if I'm wrong, suggest that it has not been robust turnout yet. What do you think, Jody? Yeah, I think that's right. And as Jeannie points out, you know, there it's low voter turnout. Um, it's also, you know, it's a pandemic. It's been a pandemic. People have just started getting out of their, um, you know, homes and and leaving their their sofas uh, in the last few weeks in New York, and well, the last few months, but really the last few weeks since things have really opened up. So I think that is also going to contribute to what's expected to be relatively low voter turnout. This is a race or a race is an election, a primary election, a better way to put it. That's getting national attention, Joe Crowley. Is that because it's New York, because the media is in New York, or because there's real interest in ranked choice? And as I mentioned, the most diverse field we've seen for mayor. I think it's a combination of things, including the fact that you've seen maybe, you know, uh, factions within the primaries themselves, uh, candidates getting together to block, potentially block someone from being elected mayor. Uh, right now, the primary focus seems to block Eric Adams. Uh, we'll wait and see what happens. I think there's also an interest because, you know, this, this, it has the left peaked, has the far left within the Democratic Party peaked. That's been something that's been talked about, and that may be reflective here in terms of the city. And, you know, the city is not a microcosm of the country. It really is not. But it can send some, uh, what's trending necessarily in the Democratic Party. And I think that's why people looking at the, at the primary itself. I think there's also you know, interest in ranked choice voting as well and seeing how it works in the largest city in the country, if it does or not. Well, we may as well name some names here. Joe just mentioned uh, Eric Adams, uh, seen clearly as the front runner, but a lot can change with ranked choice, Jody. What other names should we be looking at tonight? 
Yeah, uh, the Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams has led polls going in, uh, but but again, given that uh, with the ranked choice voting, uh, he is highly unlikely to get more than fifty, you know, to get that fifty yeah. percent. So uh, Andrew Yang, the former presidential candidate, who's gotten a lot of press and was ahead in the polls for a long time, uh, and the uh, sanitation uh, former city sanitation commissioner Catherine Garcia uh, is expected to garner a lot of votes as well. Maya Wiley, the civil rights attorney who has been in endorsed by um, some progressives uh, has gotten a lot of attention of late as well. Of course, the Democrat who wins this primary is heavily expected to win in November, almost certainly uh, expected to win in November as they're so, uh, you know, such a heavily Democratic city. Jeannie, how does ranked choice voting change your style of campaigning? I'm assuming the message has to change with the voting system. We saw a little bit of this over the week in the last few days as as two of the candidates, Garcia and Yang, sort of teamed up together. Um, you know, they are sort of on the moderate wing, you know, a little bit behind um, Eric Adams in the polls. They make up that moderate wing, maybe with, with Raymond McGuire. And they teamed up to campaign together with Yang saying he would put Garcia second on his ballot. She didn't she didn't sort of reciprocate that promise, but they no, were she, didn't. she did not. But they were giving out campaign material. They were campaigning together. So, you know, the idea with ranked choice voting is that there's going to be less sort of attacks on your opponents because you want to attract people who to list you second or third um, mm-hmm. if they have a favorite candidate. So I think we see changes in styles of campaigning. But of course, from that, we heard Eric Adams say that they were trying to push out black and brown voters. So it's been a very contentious last few days in this race. It sure has. I feel like Joe Crowley. We're getting ready to cover the Iowa caucus here. It's, it's all about the second choice. <laughs> well, Iowa caucus without the cornfields, maybe. Uh, but uh, it, 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 there's no doubt that it, it, it's definitely changed. You know, people can still bullet vote, by the way. You know, there's, there's nothing prohibiting someone from just walking in and voting for one candidate. Sure. But I think that's also lost. It may not be the way in which uh, ranked choice voting is supposed to work. But that's still an option for folks as well. I'll tell you, we're going to have a lot to learn. Jody, start 7 o'clock. How long are you guys going for? You're going to be on Til- the air till July? <laughs> that's what it's going to feel like. <laughs> it will. 7 to 11. But please well, tune in. It's going to be a lot of fun. Jeannie's going to be here. We're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah, who else are you going to have on the air tonight? Uh, so we're going to have a number of uh, Bloomberg News uh, uh, contributors and uh, maybe some surprise guests. So tune oh. in. It's going to be like that. Yeah. <laughs> well, tune in at 7, obviously, or stay right here. It's only an hour away. Uh, as the voting continues, or they're just about to get that to that point on the uh, voting rights bill in, in the uh, House, we'll keep an eye on that uh, coming up here. Jody Schneider, Bloomberg News Political Director. It's great to have you. Joe Crowley, former New York congressman. It's great to have you. And, of course, Jeannie Sheehan-Zeno. We're going to be listening to you throughout the night here in our special coverage. We'll have more tomorrow on the vote here as uh, this begins in the U.S. Senate. I should have said advancing uh, potentially this voting rights bill, though, as we discussed a little earlier in the broadcast, nobody sees the end of the road on this one. Stay here. We'll check traffic for you straight ahead. Check the markets. And in one hour, special primary election coverage here on Bloomberg Radio as voters hit the polls in New York. I'm Joe Matthew, and this is Bloomberg.
Top Thrill 2 is like no other course. Two 420-foot vertical speedways, three launches. All right, let's talk strategy. Copy that, driver. Go for maximum acceleration off the start. Roger that. You've got a short straightaway to push from 0 to 74 on the first vertical speedway. And what about the rollback? Rollback will set you up for an explosive reverse climb 420 feet in the sky so you reach 0 Gs in total weightlessness. 420 feet of straight-up speed. Let's get it. Top Thrill 2, the world's tallest and fastest triple-launch Stratocoaster. Get your tickets at cedarpoint.com. The Hartford understands protecting your business with the proper insurance can be a challenge. The Hartford team can provide coverage to suit your industry. The Hartford empowers mid- to large-size companies like yours to help manage risk, from liability and property insurance to workers' comp and more. Let the Hartford help protect what's unique about your business. Learn how at thehartford.com.